Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Today, we are going to do something a bit different in that we're actually going to run, well, someone else's podcast. <laughs> We've done that a few times in the past, but generally that was just replaying other podcasts where I happen to be the guest on that podcast. Uh, this time we're playing someone else's podcast entirely, uh, but I think you'll certainly enjoy it, uh, which is part of the reason why we're doing that. And before we, we play that podcast, we're going to have a short discussion, uh, which will touch on what this podcast is about and why we're doing it. Um, the podcast that we're going to play is an episode from the After On podcast by Rob Reed. Uh, you may recall that Rob has been on this podcast a couple of times before, uh, once to discuss his novel After On, and then uh, about a year later to discuss his podcast that somewhat tangentially grew out of the book, I guess would be a way to describe it. Um, and I've heard from quite a few people actually who said that they really enjoyed uh, those discussions and that it got them to start listening to Rob's podcast. And at least one person has complained to me that I've now added another must listen podcast to their feed. Uh, so uh, sorry, I think, I don't know, or you're welcome. That's probably better. Um, but because not all of you immediately ran out and started listening to After On, uh, we're going to play an episode from that podcast, uh, which is Rob's conversation with David Eagleman, uh, who is a uh, neuroscientist who became fascinated by our senses and then who left academia a few years ago to develop hardware that could help create new senses for humans. Yes, new senses for humans. It's very very interesting. Uh, but before we get to that, we're going to have a short conversation with Rob, uh, both about that particular podcast, as well as a new essay series that he's been uh, writing and uh, contemplating about, um, which the it's the first of those essays, uh, I believe just went live earlier today, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, uh, October 2nd, when it is released on uh, and the uh, the essay is on Medium, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And that essay series is on the potential downsides of technology. Uh, Rob, like me, I think, is a pretty strong optimist about innovation and all it does. But I think all of us recognize that there's always a possibility of science or innovation creating catastrophic results for humanity. Uh, so on that cheery note, <laughs> welcome, Rob. Thank you. Uh, and let's talk about the possible destruction of humankind. <laughs> yeah, I, I give it 50-50 odds in the next week. No, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, so as you characterized, I am a relentless uh, optimist in general, and particularly about tech in general. Um, that's in large part um, due to having been involved in the internet in 1994. I got involved in the commercial internet very early. And my, you know, co-involvees from those very early days would regale each other with these sort of top this stories about ways <laughs> that we thought the Internet was going to change the world. And yeah. over the decades, you know, we, we turned out to be right. In fact, we turned out to underestimate things. And obviously the Internet has some negative aspects, but I can't 
think of anybody that I know who would gladly go back to 1993 and sacrifice all the positives. Yeah. Um, and also it's a dispositional thing. I think, you know, I was kind of born optimistic. Um, and the podcast that I do, which as you said, uh, was sort of a spin out of a novel that I wrote that came out a year ago. I, I basically interview thinkers, founders, and scientists, truly world-class ones about the nature of their work and where it may take us in the intermediate future. And really, most of the podcast series is a statement about how, you know, fantastic things could and should be and, you know, why we should be optimistic. Although I, I don't think I ever utter any propaganda along those lines. That's the underlying message when you talk to somebody who's doing amazing things with synthetic biology, for instance. Um, it, it's, it's hard not to get optimistic. Um, but the series of essays that, that uh, if this is going up on Tuesday, October 2nd, which, by the way, is my birthday, which is Oh, cool. hey, happy birthday. It, it's a little early to say that, but it's, it, it's fair <laughs> enough because this is going to go up in the second. Um, yes. I, I wrote a series um, of four essays. It's actually really one essay that's going to run in four installments because it would just be too long on its own. And uh, Medium uh, has very graciously actually kind of hired me to write this. And they're going to be, I think they're going to be promoting it pretty hard. And it's about what could go wrong. And the context of my concern about what could go wrong is really the confidence that I have that things could be extravagantly good if we don't blow right. things. And um, the two areas I focus on, well, there's three. There's kind of three areas I focus on. The two technological areas I focus on are AI and synthetic biology, nothing exotic there. Um, and the, the risk that I actually am most concerned about, which is a little bit contrary, and I haven't seen a whole lot of writing about this, um, is the danger of that very rare individual who has reached the end of their rope, they've decided to kill themselves, and on top of that, they've decided they want to kill as many strangers as possible in the process of doing that. And we have close to one mass shooting per day right now in the United States. Um, people do this sort of thing in other nations as well. So it, it, is a, it is a truism that across societies, across centuries, across cultures and classes, a certain number of these people, I'm sorry, a certain number of people will suffer this kind of malfunction. It's always mm -hmm. happened. And when that happens, the force multiplier, the thing that really adds to the death toll, is technology. And so because that aspect of human psychology is probably not going away, but some tremendously powerful technologies that can be wielded by smaller and smaller and smaller groups are going to be coming online in a huge way in the coming decades. I think it's something that we need to be worried about now well before a truly tremendous risk is possible. Because I think in you know a handful of decades, some really devastating things will be possible. Yeah. I mean, there's already talks of like, you know, suitcase nukes or, or whatever, but, but yeah. this is potentially going way beyond that. It's, it's way beyond that because to this day, it really does take the resources of a nation state to make a nuclear weapon, even right. of the hypothetical suitcase size, which I don't know if one of those has ever even been created. Um, it generally takes the resources of a nation state and it requires ingredients 
that while they could be tracked better by the international community, are tracked pretty well. And therefore, it involves large organizations. I mean, if we thought about a terrorist group, no terrorist group would ever get this level of science access to a nuclear reactor would have to leak from North Korea, Pakistan, or somewhere else. Having done that, the number of people who would have to coordinate the suitcaseification of that thing, the right. positioning of it into a target environment, etc., that's a conspiracy that runs well into the, the dozens, if not hundreds. And all of the world's law enforcement apparatus post 9-11 has gotten pretty good at breaking up conspiracies of that scale. That's why we see more and more people just running people over in a truck, and that becomes the worst you know, terror incident. Uh, a coordinated one, like the one that happened in Paris a few years ago, we had four people running around with guns. That's pretty rare, because right. those networks get broken up. So I really worry about things that are available to lone wolves. And, right. you know, nukes ain't. Um, so, yeah, it is, a, it is a very, very different scenario from that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can see where a lot of these technologies and, you know, whether it's AI or, or bioengineering or, or, or whatever else, if you could get something that is sort of weaponized down to the point that, that yeah, a single person could create, you know. Mayhem. <laughs> Yeah, all sorts, all sorts of mayhem. That that is worrisome. Uh, do Do you have any sense of how to stop that? No, frankly, um, <laughs> and, and that's. I, I think the first thing you need to do is point very cogently and logically at the imminent risk. Uh, hopefully, decades before it happens, and get people freaking out. And get people yeah. who are far smarter than me about countermeasures and counterintelligence freaking out. So that's a vector, and that's kind of what I'm trying to achieve with this. Um, another vector, uh, actually, I think storytellers have a tremendous um, role, potentially, yeah. in you know, kind of inoculating us to falling into certain pitfalls by ignorance. I'm not going to compare myself to one of the greatest writers who ever lived, so this is not me comparing me to him, but you're citing the example of George Orwell. Mm -hmm. Writing in 1948 about how truly awful totalitarianism would become if it ran amok, you know, by the end of the century. He wrote 1984. Mm -hmm. And that terrorized a lot of the intelligentsia, particularly in, in the West. And I think that helped us avoid that truly totalitarian fate, although we'll see what happens in certain countries that are really starting to abuse technology today. Um, you know, it's, it's silly. We, it's hard not to chuckle a little bit when you talk about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But the truth is, you know, Terminator series and also 2001 A Space Odyssey and many, you know, um, uh, uh, Ex Machina, many, many other movies have injected the thought into our minds that like, yeah, um, super AI really could run amok. And that, I think, helped people deal with it in a more serious way. I mean, imagine if it was a vampire threat instead. I mean, imagine the CDC said, oh, my God, there's, a, there, there's an honest-to-God, scientifically validated vampire threat in North Korea. I'm sorry, North Korea, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. There would be a lot of chuckling, right? Like, it would be a little bit harder to take that seriously. Um, so I think storytelling can do some real inoculation. But to go back to 9-11, that was ultimately a failure of imagination on our part, you know, the, the part of the United States writ large. I'm pretty confident that if you had gotten 
four or five really smart, you know, terrorism-focused people from the CIA or whatever organization it would be in a room with a whiteboard and said, okay, guys, we're going to brainstorm. How could you destroy the, the World Trade Centers with a box cutter? Right. I'll bet you with a little bit of brainstorming and scribbling on the, white, the whiteboard, they actually would have come up with something that looked almost identical to the 9-11 plot by lunchtime. And, and having come up with that, perhaps that would have been avoided. But that question wasn't posed. We weren't thinking in those terms. And so I think just thinking and realizing today that we are on a decadal path. None of this is going to happen in three years, thank God. But we are on a, a multi-decade path, and perhaps the number is two or three, um, after which a disaffected you know, high school honors biology student could possibly do something devastatingly awful. And most of them wouldn't, but a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people suffer from this particular malfunction. And by the way, you know, one out of six or 7,000 people, which is way too many, kill themselves. We're talking about a fraction of that number. Right. Um, it, it's not a problem when only two heads of state get to destroy the world if they want to, um, although the Cold War was still scary. It's much scarier when that cast of potential destructors becomes very large. And I think yeah. that we are going to inadvertently enable that, just as we enabled, you know, um, you know, eighth graders walking around with more uh, computing power and intelligence power than, you know, probably the best CIA operative, you know, in the entire organization had just 12 years ago. Those yeah. kinds of multiplications are going to happen, and it won't just be access to information. It will be ability to create pathogens and other things. Yeah. Um, I know we're trying to keep this short, but this is really fast. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I've been, no, no. I've been marinating in this stuff, so I yeah. I don't have my snippy soundbite answer. No, no, no. It's not it's not your fault. But I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep asking a question because I'm, I'm I'm this is a really fascinating discussion, and and we will move on soon. But but yeah, yeah. you know the the one thing that I fear about this is like I I, I fear the end result that you're describing, but I yeah. also fear the the sort of um, the flip side, the backlash, right? I mean, so if you if you were to actually think through all of these scenarios and you say, how do we prevent them? Oftentimes, you know, the that prevention could could be incredibly problematic, also, right? So, I mean, going back to your example of like, if you put together a bunch of CIA guys and you say, how do we take down the the uh, World Trade Center with a box cutter? You know, you would probably or 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 similar thing, right? You could come up with, you know. A lot of different scenarios, and if you're trying to prevent them all, you could create a lot of other problems with that. So I'm what yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around is, you know, how do you prevent the the really bad thing without also, you know, eroding Finding liberty, liberty, innovation, for you know, all sorts of stuff with it. Yeah. Um, and that seems like a really really complex problem uh, here in this podcast that we're trying to do very quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I thoroughly disagree. With, I'm sorry, disagree. I thoroughly agree with what you just said. Um, uh, and by the way, I'm suffering from jet lag, so that's why I will occasionally say the opposite of what I mean. Uh, I just got big, back from uh, uh, the UK. But um, I, I thor thoroughly agree with what you're saying, which is why it's all the more urgent that we really start this conversation. And uh, speaking of starting the conversation, in my mind, it was first broached um, by two people about 15, 20 years ago. It was Bill Joy, 
writing mm-hmm. a famous cover story in Wired magazine. Uh, it was called Why the Future Doesn't Need Us or something like that. And I want to say yep. that was like 99, 2000 or thereabouts. And then another gentleman named Martin Rees, uh, who has uh, got the coolest title of anybody in the world. He is Britain's, here it comes, Astronomer Royal. Such a cool <laughs> title. And he's also, uh, so as you would imagine, he's, he's a renowned astrophysicist and he's got an incredible CV. Um, he wrote a book in 2003, so a little bit after Joy's piece, but also quite a bit longer and tackled it because it wasn't a magazine article just by the dint of the medium. Um, and this, this is a great statement about publishers and also about the UK and the United States. He wanted to call the book Our Final Century with a question mark at the end of it because hmm. he felt, in the, you know, in sitting there in 2003, that there were multiple technologies coming on the horizon that could present what we now call, thanks to Nick Bostrom coined the term existential risk. So he wanted to call it our final century question mark. Well, the, the publishers in Britain thought that wasn't shrill enough to sell enough books. So they got, rid of, they got rid of the question mark, right? And then here in the United States, they thought that wasn't even shrill enough. So they called it our final hour oh. um, in the US. But in any event, it's a wonderful, thoughtful book that talks about a diversity of potentially disastrous scenarios um, and really simple yet powerful tools for thinking about them and examining them. And what's really cool is that on the day that this podcast will air and my first episode will go, or my first installment will go up on, on Medium, also on my podcast, I'm going to be posting an interview with the Astronomer Royal in which we talk about these things because he has a new book coming out uh, I think on October 15th, called On the Future, uh, which kind of is a continuation of all these themes. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a whole lot of stuff coming out together, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're having this conversation, particularly because I assume somehow you're going to get a beer to me over the, um, the <laughs> modems here. Probably have to be a very fast modem to celebrate my birthday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so with that, if you've heard that, please go check out the, the Medium essay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the podcast that people are about yes. to hear, uh, which again is David Eagleman. Uh, and um, I, I forget when you released it exactly, but a couple months ago, I think. Yeah, and I want to say it was, uh, should I, I should know this, um, I want to say Marchish. Okay. So yeah, several months ago. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> yeah, Marchish. And and do you want to give the sort of quick summary? I mean, I just said he's trying yeah. to develop new senses for people, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, so he is a, a fascinating, very charismatic, high-energy neuroscientist who is um, so much of a renaissance man, it, it goes well beyond annoying um, into the realm that you know, it's just it's just quite offensive. So to give you, and I'm saying that playfully, obviously, um, he began his, uh, his academic career as a professor uh, at the, I think it's called the Baylor College of Medicine, which I recently found out has nothing to do with Baylor University, huh. although, although they were both, both in Texas. And it's an extremely well-regarded med school. And he was a neuroscientist, and he was interested in synesthesia, the experience of time, bunch of other things, but he got very interested in this notion that's called the Umwelt. It's a Germanic word, obviously, originated about a hundred years ago. And to strip it down, simplify it, the Umwelt is that very narrow sliver of reality that we are able to perceive with our senses. And it's really amazing when you dig into it, 
how little we actually see about of the environment that we're in. Uh, we only see about a 30,000th of the electromagnetic spectrum. And there's some very interesting information that we don't parse. And that's true for sound, it's true for scent, a bunch of other things. Every critter has its own umvelt. You know, my dog mm -hmm. can smell things, literally, it probably has a million times my sense of smell. A, a bat will see very little, but hear a great deal, but hear at frequencies that we can't access, living in a different umvelt. Um, so that's a fascination uh, of Mr. Eagleman's. And he ended up leaving academia after doing a TED Talk um, about sort of this very academic project that he had in mind, which was to create a vest uh, that has a few dozen of those servo motors that make our, our cell phones buzz. And what the vest does is it takes the entire auditory environment that you're in and translates it into a very rigorously, um, I don't know if it's predictable, but you know, a, a, a logical set of taps on the torso. With the objective being uh, to make it possible for deaf folks to hear without getting a cochlear implant, which is very, very expensive, quite invasive, and results in highly imperfect hearing. And some deaf folks just don't want to get a cochlear implant. Right. So he, he did this TED Talk about this vest. This is called sensory substitution. When you were taking one sense, in this case you're lacking, sense of sound, and mapping it to another sense's input, in this case the somatosensory uh, cortex, haptic, right? So he's turning sound into touch. And mm. while he was on stage, he made these fascinating speculative statements like, you can take in an enormous amount of data with this vest. And what if we came up with a way of rendering like a financial market and everything that's happening in it into series of taps and touches or everything that's happening in social media or something like that. Cause he has this, this belief that's informed by his neuroscientific research that the neocortex that is where m almost all of our senses with the exception of olfaction are processed. He believes it's really a general purpose computing machine and it gets senses in, in the forms of structured data that we're understanding better and better, particularly visual data. We're really starting to understand how data gets from the retina into the eye. It gets data in a structured format and it, and it converts it into sense or knowledge or an ambient sense for an environment. So when he started talking about traders making a lot of money with these this thing mm -hmm. shocker in the 20 ish minutes that it took him to walk from the ted stage to the library <laughs> to the lobby he had literally already been approached by a half dozen vcs and um he took the plunge he started the company it's called neosensory they're making the vest they're making other things and the initial target is deaf folks but he has all kinds of fascinating ways about how we might expand our umvelt the human umvelt over the coming years and decades. And he wants to do lots of things in the electromagnetic spectrum uh, with diffuse forms of information like complex business information, all the stuff that's going on in a factory, and not just strictly with the vest, but with a lot of other devices as well. So it's a really fascinating conversation with a guy who, while he was an academic, wrote a best-selling work of fiction, did an Emmy-nominated series for PBS, wrote six popularly accessible science books. I mean, he is a, he's a man of many, many talents, and he's a really, really engaging and charismatic you know, conversationalist. Yes. And so uh, 
with that, uh, you can now listen to uh, a very, very fascinating interview between Rob and David Eagleman. Uh, Rob, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this and have this discussion and uh, for uh, all the other work that you're doing, the podcasts and the, uh, the, the essay that you've written for Medium uh, and, and all of that. And hopefully uh, folks here will continue to follow you as well. Yeah, and thank you for exposing my work to your listeners. I appreciate it a ton. People who like it, um, as you'll hear, the, the podcast is called After On. And uh, that Martin Reese uh, episode should be up right now at after-on.com. But for now, it's all about David Eagleman. There we go. All right, thanks. Welcome to the After On Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Reed. And this is a series of conversations with thinkers, founders, and scientists. Take a little time and stretch out, because these talks are unhurried and meant to bring you to a top percentile understanding of something important. So, whether you're into startups or ideas, a techie or a lit major, take your time, engage your mind, and you'll be glad you did it. Especially this week, when we'll be talking to neuroscientist and entrepreneur David Eagleman. David does groundbreaking work connected to how we perceive time and also researches an intriguing phenomenon called sensory substitution. This can be manifested in many ways, one of which is the tendency of people who are deprived of one sense to develop high acuity in other senses. For instance, blind folks who have an exceptional sense of hearing or touch. David has gotten so deep into sensory substitution that he's taken the unusual step of leaving academia to start a company called Neosensory. Their first line of products seeks to help deaf people develop a de facto sense of hearing by translating the sounds in a room into a complex but highly logical series of vibrations and taps on the torso. This is accomplished with a vest, which has 32 of those humming notification motors that are found in cell phones. It's too early in the development cycle to know if the vest will become a true substitute for hearing. If it does, it should reach a significant market because it's far less expensive and certainly less invasive than cochlear implant surgery, which is the procedure that has restored hearing to many deaf people. But the real wild card is the vest's potential to possibly add new senses to the human repertoire. And yes, I said add because there are other senses out there. Some animals, like sharks, have a sense called electroperception, which lets them detect electrical fields emitted by prey and other sources. Some birds have magnetoperception, which allows them to navigate by tuning into the Earth's magnetic field. As you will soon hear, David has compelling reasons for believing that his vest might just allow humans to develop these senses, as well as some wild new ones that go far beyond the realm of any known animal. If he's correct, this could be the first step down a path toward a spectacular range of new sensoria. And if he's wrong, this is still a really fascinating framework for thinking about consciousness, perception, and more. For now, David's making no guarantees, but the vest could ship as early as the end of this year. I'd previously met David a couple of times over the years. He spoke at TED a while back, and by the way, he and I make reference to that talk in our interview, and I'll include a link to it in my show notes. Then a bit more recently, David gave the keynote at the first Members Summit of a fascinating organization called the Long Now Foundation. If you aren't familiar with the Long Now, being a listener to this podcast virtually guarantees that you'll love their archive of lectures. New ones are held monthly before large and appreciative audiences in San Francisco. I now consider myself to be a big David Eagleman fan. I love his originality and the enthusiasm and energy he summons when conveying ideas. 
he and I also share something very unusual in that we've both made significant time amidst demanding careers to write fiction. David wrote a wonderful anthology of stories called Sum, that's S-U-M, each of which explores a different plausible scenario for the afterlife, if any. It's lyrical, it's thought-provoking, and it's an international bestseller published in 28 languages. That's a very big deal. In fact, it'd be a mighty achievement for any full-time storyteller, and David did it in the midst of a highly demanding and productive career as a neuroscientific researcher. David also hosted a six-hour TV series on PBS and the BBC called The Brain, which is about, you guessed it, The Brain. It's a cosmos-like effort to convey a complex and important field to curious and intellectually ambitious outsiders. So, I now bring you David Eagleman. So thank you very kindly, David, for having me down to your home on this gorgeous day in Menlo Park, California. Prior to starting your company, you were a full-time academic for years, and you've kept a foot in that world by becoming an adjunct professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Stanford. Exactly. As an undergrad here, I took a class from your department, and all the students were required to participate in a handful of experiments that the department was conducting, none of which involved anything more terrifying than filling out an index card. But before coming here, you were a professor in Texas, where I guess the laws are a little bit more lenient because you conducted experiments using a piece of equipment called the suspended catch air device. Would you care to describe that machine? Yeah. So this is a tower that's 150 feet tall. And you take a little elevator platform up to the very top. And then we can drop you from the top in free fall and you're caught in a net below going about 70 miles an hour. The reason I did it is because I wanted to study time perception. Essentially, does time slow down when you are in a terrifying, life-threatening situation? When I was a child, I had fallen from the roof of a house that was under construction. I almost died. I broke my face up very badly. But the thing that was very memorable was that it seemed like the fall took a long time. Like I was running like a high-speed camera and taking in more information. Also, there's a calmness that often accompanies situations like this. When I got to high school, I did the calculation and discovered that it was only 0.6 of a second to get from top to the bottom and hit the floor. And so I was really intrigued by the fact that it seemed to have taken so long. So when I became a neuroscientist, I started collecting up these stories of people who had been in these life-threatening situations, car accidents, for example, where people said, I watched the hood crumple, and then I was looking at the face of the driver in the other car, and the surprise on that person's face, and then I watched my rearview mirror fall off, and they're aware of all the details. Police officers in gunfights often experience this kind of thing where time seems to be running more slowly. And then when you watch the video afterwards, you're just so surprised at how, you know, bang, bang. Okay, and then that was the whole thing. So I looked in the literature, and it turns out no one had ever done a study on this sort of thing before, because it's very difficult to stick people in a life-threatening situation and measure something about them. Yes, they don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And the institutional review boards don't like that. But what I did first is I took my whole lab to the amusement park in Houston, And we went on all the scariest rides. We brought our stopwatches and did all sorts of things. But it turns out there was nothing there that was sufficiently scary to actually induce this feeling of time having taken longer. That's when I found scad diving. It was up in Dallas, Texas. 
And the only people who go there are real adrenaline junkies because you're released, you fall backwards through the air, and it's extremely terrifying. I know this because I did this myself three times to make sure everything was working correctly. And how long is that drop? That's more than a second, right? I mean, it's a three couple, seconds. Three seconds. So plenty of time to be terrified and to lay down perhaps a lot of memories if in fact time is slowing down. Yeah, exactly. So essentially I went in with two hypotheses. I figured either time is perceptually slowing down so that at each moment you're taking in more information or everything's running the same, but you're laying down more memories during that time so that when you immediately read it back out when you say, what just happened? What just happened? It seems like it must have taken a very long time. And this is what I set up an experiment to test. So we built a device that we called the perceptual chronometer. Which is a great word, by the way, or term, I guess. <laughs> That's right. In the lab, we just called it the eagle eye. It has a little square of LED lights. It presents a number like 3259. Then all the lights that are on go off and all lights that are off go on. So what you're seeing is the image of a number and then the negative image of that number. And it flicks back and forth very quickly. You can see the number just fine. But if I make it just a little bit faster, you can't see anything because it all fuses together. You see mm. just a flat field of lights. If you're in a terrifying situation and you're actually seeing like Neo in the Matrix, then you should be able to see this at a faster rate than you normally would be able to. So to make sure I'm understanding this, pre-drop, you're not fearing for your life yet. So you're experiencing time at a normal speed. And if you look at this thing, you'll just see a matrix of lights. But once you're falling, if time actually slows down in the way people perceive it, you look at this device again, you'll be able to make out the number which had previously been flashing too quickly for you to identify. That's exactly right. So we strapped this to people's wrists. We dropped them from the tower. We did this with 23 people. And after the drop, we had people estimate how long their drop was by using a stopwatch. So they hit the button when they remember themselves falling and then hit the button when they remember themselves hitting the net. So in retrospect, they're thinking about how long the, the drop was. And then people, in fact, did have a distortion of time. In other words, it seems to have taken a longer time because people were terrified and that's exactly what we expected to find. But with the perceptual chronometer, nobody was able to see the numbers at a faster rate than normal. What that means is that they weren't actually seeing in slow motion, but instead they lay down more memories during a terrifying event. Well, the way to understand this is that when you're in a scary situation, a part of your brain called the amygdala comes online, you lay down much more information. And so when you read that out, your brain's only interpretation is that the whole event must have taken a longer time. So the amygdala actually starts laying down memories of its own. Exactly. There's actually a secondary memory track in the brain. So normally it goes through a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and that's what is involved in memory. But it, during a terrifying situation, that's when it's important to, to write things down. As Matthew Arnold, the poet, said, quick memory, thy tablets. Meaning, you know, quick, write this down because this is an important thing. So, and I don't want to be in this situation ever again. So it's like, okay, this is where I took the left turn and ran into the lion. Not going to take that left turn again. Amygdala is giving me a backup copy. So I'm remembering everything in much more detail. And it seems like it took a long time, but I am never, ever going to cross that lion's path again as a result. That's so, exactly it. Interesting. And so time does not slow, but it appears to you retrospectively. Exactly right. Now, this is part of a bunch of stuff that you've done with time. 
And it seems like it's a constant dynamic process of synchronizing things across different senses. Could you describe that situation and how you interpret the brain's activity? Yeah, essentially the brain is sitting at the middle of this mission control center. The body's taking in all this information about photons and air compression waves and pressure and touch and temperature and so on. And the brain's job is to put this all together into one coherent story of what's happening. But the problem, exactly as you said, is that the information comes in at very different speeds. So, for example, you'll hear a snap faster than you'll see the fingers. And yet, somehow the brain goes through a lot of trouble to make this seem coordinated. So that I understand, obviously, the sound waves travel slower, but we're in the same room. So it's pretty much instantaneous as far as I'm concerned. We're not across a playground looking at a ball dribbling or something. So you snap your fingers. Both the sound waves and the light waves more or less hit me instantly. My brain processes the audio and says, ah, that's what a snap sounds like. And it's done with its task before the visual cortex says, ah, that's what the snap looked like. But yet they seem to happen simultaneously, even though they're being interpreted in a laggy way. That's exactly right. And the way we know this is you dunk an electrode into the auditory cortex, and you look at how long it takes for the cells there to respond, and you dunk an electrode into the visual cortex. The visual cortex happens to be huge in humans because we're very visual animals. It just takes a long time to register things there. And it's the same if I touch your cheek and your big toe at the same time, it will seem to you like those are simultaneous even though it takes the signal from your big toe about 200 milliseconds to climb all the way up the nerves in your legs and up your spinal cord and get to your brain, whereas your cheek, it gets there uh, very quickly. So, really? 200 milliseconds? Yeah. So that's a fifth of a second yeah. from the foot to the brain. Yes, exactly. Wow. I didn't know it went that slowly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was looking at all this a long time ago, and I thought, how in the world does the brain put all this together? And there's essentially only one conclusion you can come to, which is that we live in the past. And the reason is, your brain has to collect up all this information to stitch together a story of, okay, what just happened in the moment now? What was the clap? What was the knock on the door? The cup crashing to the ground? Whatever. Your brain puts all these signals together and then says, okay, here's what just happened, but it's actually living quite a bit behind. At least 200 milliseconds, we'd assume, just for the toes to catch up. So tall people are even further in the past. Exactly right. I once mentioned this on NPR radio. I don't know if I told you, but I got a whole ton of emails from short people saying, I'm short, and I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> so this has actually led me to hypothesize something that I haven't had a chance to test yet, which is that if you compare, let's say, an elephant to a hummingbird, an elephant, if you touch it on the back toe, that information has to travel all the way up the nerves to the brain. And if the elephant wants a unified perception of what's happening now, he's got to live quite a bit in the past as opposed to a small bird. So the thing is, the editing trick that the brain does of putting together these things can be seen just as an example. When television was first invented, the engineers were worried about how do we keep the audio signal synchronized with the visual signal? And what they realized is that they didn't really have to because the viewer's brain will sync those up for them as long as the audio and visual arrive within 80 milliseconds you can't even tell that they're out of sync. 80 milliseconds is a threshold. Exactly. This is always the threshold with audio and visual, just as an example with the dribbling the ball in the playground. If you watch a kid dribbling a ball, it looks synchronized. It looks like the ball is hitting the ground and you're hearing that and seeing it at the same time. And if you back up slowly, you'll see that it still looks synchronized, still looks synchronized. And then you get to 110 feet, 
suddenly it looks asynchronous. All at once. All at once. So you'd think there'd be a gradient of getting out of sync, more and more out of sync, but then it's just a cliff at 110, exactly. 110 feet. And then after that, it's probably a gradient, more and more out of sync in a very smooth way that you would expect with distance. That's exactly right. And of course, the 110 feet is where the speed of sound and the speed of light differ by 80, 80 milliseconds. milliseconds. Wow, that's interesting. A lot of things would seem to get really difficult if you were out of sync by a fifth of a second, probably most sports. Cooking, I'd probably burn myself a lot more. So what tricks does our mind play to enable us not to stumble, even though we're a fifth of a second in the past. Yeah, well, it turns out that everything we've been talking about has to do with your conscious perception of what's going on. But the brain can react much more quickly before you ever become aware of it. So for example, you know, you're driving on the way here and your foot gets halfway to the brake before you consciously realize that there's a blue car pulling out of the driveway ahead of you, or the way you duck out of the way of a tree branch that's swinging back at you even before you're consciously aware of it. It just happens. So your body can do all kinds of things pre-consciously. And what we're talking about here is just the final story, the narrative that your brain puts together about what just happened in the world. Wow. So you are seeing, reacting, perceiving, doing things, and then in a sense becoming at least of the very fast things, aware of them after the fact. Exactly right. And I think it's because our conscious perception is essentially the building blocks that we use to make our next plans. You know, it's like a business when they do a post-mortem and they figure out, okay, well, what just happened there? Okay, great. This is what happened. We're all going to agree. That's the thing. And then you make you use that to make new plans. This is sort of the retrospective narrative about what happened. So the work that you've done with time is pretty wide ranging. And you've also done a lot of work that pertains to senses. Is it reasonable to say that perhaps time is in a sense, a sense? Is it the sixth sense beyond smell, touch, etc.? Or is it something that's entirely different? I think time is like a sense. We sometimes talk about it as being metasensory. And what that means is it lives on top of all the other senses. I can ask you to compare the duration of a beep to the duration of a flash of light. And you can compare across senses. And how does that compare to the duration that I touched your elbow and so on? And there are completely separate neural networks that underlie different aspects of time. There are networks in the brain that care about duration. How long does something last? There are completely separate networks that care about things like how fast is something flickering. There are other totally different networks that care about temporal order judgments, like did this happen before that? So your sequence sensor might be in a completely different part of the brain and use different apparatus than your duration sensor. Exactly So there's right. lots of different ways of perceiving. And there's no time cortex in the brain, right? There is a visual cortex, an auditory, but there's no time cortex, correct? That's exactly right. Time is this weirdly distributed property with all these different aspects to it. If time itself isn't necessarily a sense, there is this vast sensory realm that you and others refer to as the umwelt. Did I say it correctly? Yes, that's right. I assume it's a Germanic word. Our umwelt is different from that of a bat which is different from that of a tick, et cetera. Would you care to talk a little bit about the umwelt and how it's experienced by different critters? There's this notion of what's called the umgebung, which is objective reality out there. Which is an even better word than umwelt. <laughs> Could you say it again? Umgebung. That's what I thought you said. Yes. yes. That's the whole of reality. That's the whole of reality. And it turns out that we can't see most of that and no creature can. So what happens is every creature has their little window on that based on the sensors that they have. So for us, we have eyes and ears and nose and fingertips, and we take in information, and then we think, ah, that is the world out there. 
But one of the things that really blew my mind open when I was much younger was the electromagnetic spectrum. We actually only see less than a 10 trillionth of that. And that's what we call visible light. We don't see x-rays. We don't see microwaves, radio waves, etc. Exactly right. And so then we sort of take what we see around us to be reality. And actually, it turns out this is everything. With air compression waves, we're only hearing a particular range. You know, only certain frequencies, here. yeah. Bats hear a completely different range. For the tick, you know, it's picking up on temperature and body odor, and that's all it picks up on, and that's how it constructs its world. That's its entire umwelt. That's its entire umwelt is constructed out of that. And the electromagnetic spectrum thing first made the whole notion of the umwelt accessible to me. Honeybeans actually see ultraviolet, right? And I think in your book, you mentioned rattlesnakes see infrared. So those are near neighbors of our spectrum that they can see we simply cannot see a pretty high percentage of women have a fourth photoreceptor. Is that right? This is hypothesized to be the case. So what is clear is that about 15% of females have a slightly mutated version of one of the photoreceptors. All of us normally have three, but they end up having four because their two X chromosomes express slightly different versions of it. And the thing that is hypothesized, can they actually see four-dimensional color so that they're seeing colors that the rest of us don't see? And then there's electroperception, right? And then also magnetoperception, right? Don't birds use perception of the Earth's magnetic field in order to navigate? Exactly. Birds and cows and insects. Actually, there was a terrific study probably four years ago where someone was looking at satellite photos from all around the world and realized that cows all around the world are always oriented in the north-south direction. I've heard that, yeah. And so it turns out cows have magnetoreception. Presumably, particularly for the birds, there has to be something that it feels like. Hearing and sight are very distinct from each other. If you have magnetoperception or electroperception, I think it's a ghost knife fish. You told me in a prior conversation, that has to feel like something. That magnetic pull is expressing itself in the sensoria of that critter in a way that we can't even imagine. That's right. Now, we don't actually know what it is like to be another creature in terms of their conscious perception and whether they have it and how much and whether it's a different degree. But yes, let's assume for the moment that they are conscious, then it feels like something to them to feel these perturbations in electrical fields the same way that it feels like something to us to have vision or hearing. Or To us, we have this way of summarizing it. I mean, this is an obvious thing, but it's worth repeating, which is that colors don't exist in the outside world. Red, green, blue, that doesn't exist. All that exists is different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, and our brains interpret that as color. And the color is just a way of tagging the information of saying, oh, okay, that's that particular wavelength. I'm going to call that red. I'm going to see it as red. Anyway, the point is, if you are the black ghost knifefish, what does it feel like to have electroreception? Does it feel like colors? Does it feel like smell? Does it feel like something totally different? You know, we're so used to hearing and seeing and smell and so on, and you would never confuse these. I would never see something and think, oh, I just smelled something or I just heard something. Unless you have synesthesia. Well, what synesthetes have is an extra perception that goes along with something, but they don't think that the thing they saw was actually a smell or a sound. They just associate it strongly with something in an additional sense. Exactly. It's associated. It's like a tagging almost. Yeah, exactly. And you have an amazing passage from an upcoming book about bats and canaries passing by, and they inhabit entirely incompatible umwelts, right? I was just looking up the frequency ranges that their ears hear, and so it turns out a canary hears from 250 to 8,500 hertz. But a brown bat hears from 10,000-something hertz to 120,000. So 
they're using the same method of communication, but at totally different ranges. So imagine a canary and a bat flying around over the same meadow as the sun is descending. They can each call out as the other wings passed, but both would insist the other is rudely silent. That's funny. They're in completely different umwelts. Now, the other thing that fascinates me, the umwelt can be a very powerful shaping force on evolution and survival. So what is the fish you told me about? It's the stopjaw lanternfish. Did I get that right? It's or the sl- stoplight loose jaw. The stoplight loose jaw. Okay, let's talk briefly about the stoplight loose jaw fish. This is to me another example of the cool wackiness of biology. All of its cousins live in a different range and eat a particular kind of fish. But this particular fish descended a bit. Physically descended deeper in the ocean. Sorry, that's what yeah. I mean. Yes, it would drop down to lower depths of the ocean. And what it did is it developed this red light. It emits this light. It emits this light, yeah. exactly, from the, essentially its jaw area. And it turns out that at that depth, no other fish sees in red light. Why? Because red light doesn't make it all the way down to that depth of the ocean. So other fish, they don't get to see that light. This fish gets to light up the ocean around it this way. It has also developed the ability to see this light by doing this very weird trick with some chemicals. And that it could see other fish of its own type if it's like in a mood to date or something like that. They they need to be able to find each other, but nobody else can see. It's almost like fish encryption. Exactly right. This is actually all in my next book about private communication channels. For example, lots of frogs and mice and so on that live near rivers where there's a lot of noise they've evolved so that their communication is just at a higher frequency. And so what it makes you wonder, what are all of the private communication channels happening around us that we haven't scratched the surface of yet and we won't discover until 2050 or the year 3000 or whatever about the creatures all around us? Now, you've cited this as well as the phenomenon of sensory substitution in theorizing that maybe the brain's cortex is very generalized, that even though this region works with audio, that one works with sight, a third one works with scent, etc. Maybe the underlying cortex tissue is actually capable of working with any sense. And therefore, maybe our sensory organs are kind of like peripherals on a computer, which can be swapped in and out. Yes, exactly. So this is the argument I make in my next book, is that the brain is like a general purpose compute device, and all these Things like eyes and ears and fingertips and so on are just plug and play devices and the brain just figures out how to use it. If you look at the cortex, which is the outer wrinkly part, it's about three millimeters thick. It looks exactly the same everywhere, which is to say it's doing the same trick. And whether you plug into it, visual information or auditory or touch from the body or smell or whatever, it's exactly the same circuitry everywhere. So that's a very important clue that what it's doing is just general cortex operations on whatever the data is that come in. If I were to show you a little bit of brain tissue, live brain tissue, and we were able to peer at it and see all the spikes of activity going on in there, you'd see pop, 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 pop. You'd see all this activity going on, but you wouldn't be able to tell me whether you're looking at visual cortex or auditory cortex or somatosensory cortex getting feeling from the body or olfactory from the nose. You can't tell me that. Well, I couldn't. Could Adam Ghazali? Could you? Or experts who are deep into neuroscience equally incapable of saying, oh, that's auditory, that's visual. Totally incapable. I mean, obviously, we can look at the location and know, but yeah. what I'm saying is if I just showed you a little patch where everything else was blocked off... and like a cubic millimeter. Exactly. You're looking at this cubic millimeter going... You would have no idea where it's from. Why? It's because the language of the brain is these electrochemical signals. We call them spikes that are popping around between neurons. Every neuron in your brain is popping off between you know 10 and hundreds of these every second of your life. And you've got 86 billion of these neurons. 
this is the language of the brain and everything gets translated into that common currency. So whether it's photons through the eyes or air compression waves through the ears, it all turns into these spikes. And so the weird part is that you would never confuse vision and hearing. It's because they all made exactly the same stuff. So what I hypothesize is that this has to do with the structure of the data. So your eyes are two-dimensional sheets that are sending information back in a particular way. As a result, visual information ends up having a particular kind of structure, which is different than auditory, different than what's coming from your fingertips. Like a linear one-dimensional signal through time, I guess. Yeah, exactly right. And then touch would be a very high-dimensional signal. Yes, they would all have very, very different patterns. Exactly right. Yeah. This is my hypothesis that the structure of the data is what leads to the qualia. Qualia means the internal experience that you're having. Even though your vision is made of exactly the same stuff as your hearing and your smell, they feel super different to you. I think it's because of the structure of the data. And presumably magneto perception and electro perception would have a different structure, so it might be experienced as an entirely different scent. Precisely. Instead of it being like vision or hearing or whatever, it's a completely different thing that we can't even imagine. Now, we've got a lot of information from people who go blind or born blind or go deaf. The brain doesn't like any part lying fallow. And so that part of the cortex that's no longer getting information just gets taken over by the neighboring senses. And this is why people who are blind have a better sense of hearing and touch because they're using more cortex. Cortex is the magical stuff where the more you have, the better you are at something. And in fact, just as a side note, with autistic savants, someone who's extraordinary at the Rubik's Cube or things like that, it turns out they've just devoted a lot more of their cortex to this thing. And if you devote a lot of cortex to the Rubik's Cube, you will be very good at it. Now, the situation that most of us have is that we're dividing our cortex between all kinds of different tasks. And so we're pretty good at lots of things, but not extraordinary at any one thing. Anyway, the point is that the cortex will get taken over when you lose a sense. And when a new sense gets plugged in, the cortex just gets shared. An example of this was back in the 70s. A scientist plugged a third eye into a frog. And it turns out that the third eye just shares the space. It's an extraordinarily flexible system. And so this is what led people to start thinking about this question of what's called sensory substitution, which is, can you feed information to the brain, let's say visual information, but through a different channel? Can you get it to the brain somehow other than through the eyes and the brain will figure out how to use it? So the first paper on this was in 1969. A scientist named Paul Bakirita took blind people and put them in a modified dental chair. And he built this little grid of solenoids that would poke them in the back. And he took a video camera and whatever was in front of the video camera, they would feel that poked into their back. So if it was a circle in front of the camera, they'd feel that circle poked in their back. If it was a line or a face or whatever, they'd feel that poked in their back. Blind people got really good at being able to tell what was in front of the camera. And this is because it doesn't really matter how the information gets to the brain. As long as it gets there, the brain will figure out what to do with it. And there's a company called YCAB that makes an electrode grid that sits on the tongue. So you have a video camera, and whatever the video camera sees gets transmitted into these little electrical sparks on the tongue. And so you can essentially see through your tongue. Blind people can navigate complex obstacle courses with this, and they can throw a ball into a basket. It's very impressive. Really? And there's also a very noted climber, right, who's entirely blind. But he climbs with this, and he's able to perceive the rock faces crisply enough. So now we've got this data coming into the tongue, and it's being interpreted better and better, I assume, as people work with it more. Do they start perceiving it as something that is akin to sight? Or is it they just get really good 
at knowing this configuration of touches on the tongue means this thing? It's an awesome question, and we just don't know the answer to it yet. There's no way to know what their internal experience is. For example, I don't know if what you call vision and what I call vision is the same. And so if a blind person says, look, I can throw this ball into the basket, and this is what it's like for me, how would you know if it is or is not the same thing for you? That's the challenge that we face about private subjective experience. How do you know that what I see is red and what you see is red is the same red? Our mothers taught us to call that red, and we can transact by saying, hey, pass the red thing, and you can pass it over. But it might be a totally different experience on the inside, and it actually could be much worse than that. My vision could be completely upside down from what your vision is, and it doesn't matter as long as we can interact and transact in the world. So there's a number of sensors on the tongue, and this is obviously far more portable than a dentist chair, but it's got to be socially awkward to be walking around with this thing in your mouth. You probably can't speak very well. You certainly can't eat. And that takes us to this amazing vest that you are developing, which is distributing information over a much larger part of the body and is far more portable than a dentist chair. Let's talk a little bit about Neosensory, the company you started. Yeah, so something that I started in my lab five, six years ago, really taking this idea about sensory substitution seriously and trying to figure out, can we build a device that can pass information into the brain? So we're starting with people who are deaf. And we've built this vest with 32 vibratory motors on it. It's like the little buzzer on your cell phone. But imagine you have 32 of these, and they're operating every 20 milliseconds. And you have these patterns, these networks of vibration happening all over your body as sound is occurring. So there's microphones that pick up on the sound. And if I say, hello there, you feel, and you feel that all over your body. The different motors represent low to high frequency bins. And deaf people can come to understand the auditory world of what's happening around them just based on this vibration on their skin, on their torso. I wanted this to be something that's completely non-invasive and non-obtrusive. So you wear this under your clothing and no one even knows you have it on. What we've done more recently is made a wristband version of this, which only has eight motors instead of 32. So it's slightly lower resolution hearing, but it's extremely useful for all sorts of environmental sounds. Like, is there somebody knocking on the door? Is there a siren? Is there a dog bark? Is there a baby crying? And you can just wear it on your wrist. Looks like a Fitbit. No one even knows that you have some sort of device on. I find this kind of thing very useful for adoption. Lots of people need hearing aids, but only a small fraction of people wear hearing aids because it's socially embarrassing for people to wear them. And how far along is the vest? You're shipping this year, correct? Exactly right. At the very end of this year. So we've been doing lots of testing with the wristband, with the vest. How do people train on it? The way we structure a typical test is, let's say we have 50 words in a set and the phone presents a word to the vest. So you feel... Yep. And then you have four choices on the phone and you have to guess which word you just felt. So at first, of course, you have no idea. So it's a training app. It's basically. a training app, exactly. Yeah. And you guess and you get feedback. You see what the right answer was. Then we switch up to a new 50 words. Are people better than they were the first time that they saw these previous 50 words? And the answer is yes. They're better and they're better each time because what they're getting is a sense of the language of the vest. They're understanding how to use the vest the way you understand an ear so they'll get a sense that this particular configurations of bumps is like a ch, and that one is like a sh, and this one is like something else. And so they'll start breaking it down into the fundamental sounds of speech. Exactly right. It's the phonemes, as they're called. 
Well, what's interesting is if you were deaf and you read this very erratic, irregular language that we have, and we have incredibly irregular spelling in English, so you might not know that E-N-O-U-G-H, the G-H is the same thing as the F in fun. That might create a bit of a hurdle as you're breaking things down into phonemes because they wouldn't necessarily perceive written words in phonemes, right? That's exactly right. And in fact, many languages are totally transparent. Italian, for example, is whatever you see is what you hear. It turns out, though, that nine out of 11 deaf people went deaf later, and often it was postlingually. So they already knew how to hear and speak, and then that they went deaf. That big a majority? Yeah, that's really majority. Yeah, only two out of 11 are born deaf. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. So as a result, it's easy if you already get what language is about. Your ear, all it's doing is capturing the sound waves in the air and breaking it down into different frequencies and then shipping those off along different cables to the brain. That's all the ear does. And yet hearing feels to you like you're having this immediate experience of the auditory world. But what we've built here is no different. It's just capturing sound, breaking into different frequencies, and sending those different frequencies to different spots on the torso, and that gets shipped up to your brain. Do people get up to speed on it in a slow, steady way, or is it more like punctuated equilibrium? Your performance on it improves each day in a straight line, as opposed to a jump where you say, oh, I get it now. And the reason is that this is all unconscious learning because these patterns are far too complicated for you to say, oh, I get the thing. Yeah, and imagine when the blind folks were sitting in the dentist chair in the 60s, having a circle poked into your back would be comprehensible. You'd be able to very consciously interpret it. But at this point, you have all kinds of complexities of spoken speech. You couldn't possibly do the A to B translation in your mind. Yeah, exactly. And what we've discovered is that Some things are extremely easy to learn and some things are very hard. Let me just give you an example of something easy to learn. We set up a version of this for people with blindness and we did this in collaboration with Google. They have LiDAR in their offices, laser radar, and so they know the location of everything moving around in the office. In a particular office or throughout all of Google's campus? I think it's just in this particular office. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Google freaks me out, so okay, good. (laughs) Even they don't have every single object being tracked. Okay, good. Right. In this particular office, we put that data onto the vest and then brought in a blind participant. And so what he could feel was, okay, there's someone off to the left. And as the person gets closer, the intensity of the buzz gets stronger. And then there's someone maybe a little farther off up ahead. And there's someone walking around behind him. And he could feel all that based on the vibrations on his torso. Like a proximity sensor. And in 360 degrees, it's all very intuitive. I could see why somebody would learn that very quickly. Exactly. That was essentially instantaneous. There was no learning that had to happen there. In contrast with deafness and learning the language of what phonemes mean. Uh, So how quickly and how well do deaf folks who have been with the vest for a long period of time learn? Do they get to the point where they're almost fluent hearers or is there sort of a stopping point that they get to? We don't know the answer to that yet. We keep updating our algorithms and changing things. So what we have is data on what deaf people can achieve, but we have no idea what the ceiling is. Right. How far have the furthest ones gotten at this point? Have they gotten to the point where they wear the vest all the time and it substantially enhanced their lives, or is it still more in the lab? Unfortunately, it's still done completely in the lab. At the moment, we're not having people go home with it because it's all still in prototype phase and big clunky batteries and so on. What we're doing now is doing the wristband, which is lower resolution, but It's kind of amazing how intuitive some sounds are. So just as an example, the computer presents to the wristband, buzz, 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 and then you get four choices. Was that 
a baby crying, a dog barking, somebody laughing, or somebody clanking dishes around. And people on their very first day before they've ever worn it, they get about 70% correct, whereas 25% would be chance. There's some other wild stuff I know that you've thought of as we get beyond hearing into other domains, whether it's developing a felt sense for a market or something else. To me, the big picture of this whole thing is to build new senses for humans on a time scale that evolution can't keep up with. Like magnetoperception or electroperception or something entirely different. Exactly right. What I'm interested in is, can we build a new type of human in the next few years? A new type of human with a new suite or a new palette of senses. Exactly right. Deafness is really just the beginning. The next step is this sensory addition piece, which is what could you perceive from the world if you had a peripheral detector like eyes or ears or nose, but in this case, a wristband or a vest that fed in information. Stock market is one of them. I showed this at TED, this experiment that we ran where we feed real-time data from the stock market to a user who doesn't know what the data is, but two buttons appear and they have to choose which button to press, the yellow or the blue button. And they don't know that they're making buy or sell decisions. They get feedback a second and a half later. They don't know it. They don't That's know interesting. it. Interesting. And so they've either bought or sold at a profit or loss. Exactly. And they get feedback after a second and a half. Like a stinging electroshock <laughs> if they lost money, right? <laughs> With the, but proportionate to how much they lost for the boss who's having them wear this thing. This sounds like a Black Mirror episode. Right. Well, Exactly. It turns out that right after I presented that at TED, several people asked me about this. As an academic, I just felt like I'm not sure that I want to go down this path. So I've actually put the stock market experiment on hold. But what we are doing is trying to feed in all kinds of other senses. So just as an example, you take a molecular detector and you can pick up on scents that our little tiny impoverished noses don't pick up on. And then you can feel those. So it's like expanding your nose. And I was thinking for DEA guys who carry around their dogs with them, it'd be nice if you could just detect all these scents yourself and 50 others that dogs can't. You wouldn't have to clean up after the vest. <laughs> yeah. And we're doing things with robotic surgery where instead of having to continually look and consult the monitor and look at the patient's vitals and so on, you could just concentrate on the thing you're doing and you're feeling the patient's vitals through the vest. We're interested in things about factories where you're feeling all kinds of information about the running of the factory, the machines and so on, all on your skin. This is not useful for an alert. I mean, if something is getting too hot and you need an alert, that's easy. You can just do that with an iWatch or with a, your phone or whatever. But this is for multidimensional data, really high dimensional stuff like how is this whole system running in relation to itself, all the pieces and parts. And you can feel when a pattern is different. Right. It's got to be an ambient awareness. Like you said, if it's an alert, if it's Three Mile Island and once every 30 years the alert goes off, you might as well have a klaxon. But it would be more useful in something in which there's a constant shifting in the data that's coming in and an ambient awareness would be valuable. So actually a market does make a great deal of sense. I understand why you retreated from that as an academic with all these hedge fund dudes perhaps coming up to you, Ted, saying, ah, one billion isn't enough. I need three billion. <laughs> that isn't exactly how you perhaps set out to serve humanity. But a market is a good example of that. And I would imagine piloting a drone. Now you're working on an XYZ axis. You've got velocity. You've got wind. An ambient awareness of a diversity of things coming in could perhaps be very useful. Have you done anything with that? We have. So we've set this up with drone pilots. The pitch, yaw, roll, orientation, and heading of the drone, you're feeling it on your vest. It's very low latency. It's about 20 milliseconds. So it's as though you've stretched your skin up to the drone up there because you're feeling all these details of what's going on. And 
it allows somebody to get to a point where they can pilot a drone in the dark or in the fog in San Francisco, where you don't even have to see the drone, you're feeling what is going on with the drone. Wow. And so that's a super example of the kind of data that you can get and start expanding your body in that sense. There's a sense in which we already do this. For example, when you drive a car, if your right front tire rolls over something that you didn't expect, you almost feel as though you were the one who felt it, yeah. even though it was just your tire that hit it. So when you step into a car, you kind of expand your sense of where your body is. But this is a way of doing this with radio frequency signals over a great distance. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you've done stuff with drones already. Yeah. Is there anything else that you can talk about where you've done this sensory ventriloquism of throwing your sensoria off into something else? Yeah, well, what we're doing is several projects with VR and AR. We just made an announcement of a collaboration that we, Neosensory, are doing with a VR company called High Fidelity. You may remember this oh, video Oh, yeah, Bill Rosedale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. He did Second Life, right? Exactly. So this is like Second Life in VR, where you put on VR glasses and you interact with hundreds or thousands of other avatars in this virtual world. It's Has he launched High Fidelity yet? I got a demo about a year and a half ago. I went by the office. I was blown away, but this was 18 months back. Is it yet unlaunched? It's still in beta and it'll launch this summer. Got it. And when it launches, it will launch with your vest, it Exactly like. right. Wow. Exactly. And part of what has really sped us up is the movie Ready Player One is coming out. And that has a haptic suit in it where even though the person is in VR, if someone touches him in VR, he can feel that in real life. That's exactly what we have built. Ah. And we've demoed this at high fidelity. And it's absolutely terrific because normally avatars just pass through each other, right? But now if I reach out as an avatar and touch your avatar, you feel it in real life. You feel it on your skin and it is an absolutely amazing feeling. And what I notice is that VR feels a little thin without it now once you take the vest off. Now, when you think about new senses, have you done anything with senses that we know are in the umwelt of other critters? Have you done anything with electroperception or magnetoperception? This is essentially the central fascination that I have. I'll just give you an example of something I'm interested in. A colleague of mine has figured out how to make very inexpensive cameras that see in the microwave range. They do this because they put them on satellites, but they made these accidental discoveries just by looking at things in the microwave range. One of them was you can tell if water is drinkable or polluted just by the way it looks in the microwave range. And no one knew that before, but really? they happened to look and they noticed this. So if I wear this camera and I'm seeing something in a totally different range, what other things will I accidentally discover because I'm just a person walking around the world and I notice, hey, I always feel this thing over here and not over here. My neighbor is making a TV dinner, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I'm going to try all these different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum over time. And the cool part to me is that our recent ancestors who were explorers and went around the world to find new lands, there's no opportunity to do that anymore. There's no more land to be discovered on this planet. But the entire electromagnetic spectrum is there for exploration. And so I'm setting out to be an explorer of that and yeah. to walk around in these different ranges and see what kind of discoveries are there. And I think it's extremely rich for discovery. Well, it's expanding the umwelt. You have this theory that it's the data pattern that gets laid down. Visual will be 2D planes. Audio will be the signal that's a one-dimensional thing going through time. Have you thought about, well, what might be the data pattern for this other perception? It's completely different from the rhythm of the inputted data from our five traditional senses. So it might actually feel like something completely different. I mean, this is exactly what I'm thinking about. In general, we're probably already there in the sense that if you have a 
pattern of vibrations where you have different locations and things vibrating and every 20 milliseconds that's changing, that's already a different kind of data stream. It's its own structure. Yeah. It's its own structure. It's different exactly. from when your cochlea produces in your ear. Exactly right. It's a completely different thing. So whether we're feeding in stock market data or drone data or whatever, I think it's going to be its own thing. Will the Vest have an API so anybody can do whatever the hell they want with it? That's exactly right. So we've built it so it's got this open API because our list on our whiteboard in the lab is 27 items long, but there are probably 27,000 things that other people are going to think of that we haven't even thought of. Certainly. I mean, think of the apps that the iPhone first shipped with. And originally, Steve Jobs didn't even intend for there to be an app ecosystem at all. He thought he'd pretty much thought of all the things you could do with a phone. Nobody thought of Uber. Are you going to have an app infrastructure as well? Exactly right. And we're going to have an app store so that people can say, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so people can say, you know what? I want to feed in Twitter data or I want to feed in weather data or whatever they want to feed in. And a lot of people will experiment with markets for sure. Another thing that I imagine will become useful is the fidelity and the granularity. You're starting with 32 of these motors. You're riding the curve of the consumer electronics industry. So these actuators already exist for cell phones and other things. When you look two, three, four years out, do you feel that like, yeah, probably within a few years we'll be at 64, then 128, then 512 of these motors? Or do you feel a little bit more constrained in terms of how the fidelity is going to develop? The only constraint we have actually is what's called two-point discrimination, which is a measure on the skin of how far apart two things need to be in order to distinguish it. Distinguish and it. if you get below that level, it's not going to do you any good. It's exactly. like having more pixels below retina display. What do you need with further pixels? When do you get to the retina display of the torso? Do you have a sense for that? Yes. So we've measured this very carefully, but it's different all over the torso. So for example, on your belly, you have slightly higher resolution than on the small of your back. Got it. Knowing what you know now, and obviously you're going to know more a year or two from now, if you could make the ultimate device that has as many motors as a normal person could perceive, like the retina display of the torso... Would that be in the hundreds or thousands? Oh, it would be in the hundreds. It'd be in the hundreds. Probably a hundred is about the max we could fit on the torso. But Even if they, out... you can make them as small as you wanted, you, exactly. you get below the point of perception. So at 32, you're already pretty close. Exactly right. Yeah, and yeah. Also, there are these haptic illusions where, let's say I have two motors that are six centimeters apart. If I stimulate one or I stimulate the other, you feel these two different locations. But by stimulating both of them at the same time in different degrees, I can actually feel as though there's a spot in between the motors that's being touched. Oh, interesting. So in other words, by cleverly turning on a handful of motors at a time, you can actually feel a touch essentially anywhere on your torso. That's interesting. So you can get down to a deeper resolution than 32 pixels with your 32 motors already. Exactly right. And this is what we're doing in VR is anywhere that you're feeling a touch on the avatar's torso we can make it seem as though that's exactly where you were touched. That's cool. And of course, as with everything, the 1.0 is going to feel very revolutionary when it comes out. But when the 5.0 is shipping, it's going to seem very primitive. And how many people work for the company now? 18 people. 18 people. And are you the CEO or did you hire a CEO? I started this company with my former graduate student and we left the CEO role blank. So we've been acting as co-CEO for three years, but at some point we'll fill that. Got it. Well, this has been hugely exciting, and the vest is going in directions that I hadn't even anticipated. I can't wait for it to ship. How long do you expect the battery life to be when you ship? 16 hours. That's good. So that a deaf person can wake up, put it on, listen the whole day with it, and then go to bed. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Great. Thanks a million, Rob. I certainly hope that David's vest can deliver on its maximum promise but we won't know for a while. 
he and his team are still the better part of a year from their targeted ship date, and this amounts to a long, steep climb. Because hardware is hard in more ways than one. It's hard in that you feel it if you drop it on your toe, obviously, but it's also hard in the sense of being very difficult to build. Mary Lou Jepson talked about some of the unique challenges of specking and shipping hardware in our last episode, and I can add to that from my personal experiences as an investor and advisor to multiple hardware companies over the years. First, it's a huge challenge to get the attention of the top manufacturers if you're a startup, or even to get them to accept your orders and money. Contract manufacturers operate on razor-thin margins and have to push billions of dollars worth of product through their infrastructure every month just to stay afloat. In their world, even a startup that delivers a home run of a launch will only place a wisp of orders in its first year. This is a problem if the setup and takedown of production lines is a major element of your cost structure, as it is for any contract manufacturer. As a result, they need to think twice, and then several more times, before taking on a nascent product which will need just as much setup time as the next billion-dollar production run of some boring and established widget. Also, pushing the 1.0 version of a revolutionary product through your factory doesn't have much upside. Investors and founders can get rich if something new catches on, but manufacturers generally just get their margin on whatever they ship. So when a startup approaches the biggest and best contract manufacturers, it is a tough sale to make, even though it is theoretically the customer. And making things worse, prototyping and testing is an agonizing process with hardware because countless glitches that no one anticipates will inevitably dog your engineers for weeks. And what's perhaps a perverse derivative of Murphy's Law, it always seems to be the small, even trivial things that bring you to your knees, rather than the crazy ambitious design points that practically challenge the laws of physics. Finally, in the late stages of prototyping hardware, your every shot on goal is murderously expensive. Each new design requires the creation of customized dyes and molds. And whether you just make a few prototypes with those tools or millions of production units, there are major fixed costs to cover. This means if your prototype requires much of a redesign, you're looking at a huge delay, plus millions in unanticipated costs. Again, I do hope that David's startup, Neosensory, can shoot all these rapids. I'd not only love to see what they can do with their vest, but also what inventive uses outside developers can find for it. Because however big and brilliant your company is, the vast majority of smart people don't work for you. And maintaining an open platform is the best way to onboard contributions from talented outsiders. Even the best companies can lose sight of this fundamental law of tech, as Apple showed when they shipped the original iPhone with no way for third parties to develop true applications for it. It's a good thing for everyone that they fixed that quickly. I've thought a lot about my conversation with David in the days since we sat down, particularly the notion of the Umwelt, which was almost entirely new to me. The fact that Umwelts can serve as evolutionary weapons, encryption channels, and more seems obvious in retrospect, but this was far from self-evident to me before I sat down with David. Indeed, I scarcely even knew the word, and the few times I encountered it in books, I tended to read it as Umwelt, and I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing Ungabung correctly. Anyway, I've since gotten deeper into the subject of encountered related concepts like the Merkwelt, the Verkwelt, and the Innenwelt. I discuss some of this in English, I promise, in the recorded addendum to this podcast that I'm posting on Patreon, which again is at patreon.com slash Rob Reed. This includes a few minutes of thoughts about the Umwelts of robots. Yes, really. 
which originated not with me, but with one of the towering figures of the robotics world, Rodney Brooks. The first company Rodney founded, iRobot, creates the iconic Roomba and has shipped tens of millions of the critters throughout the world, as well as the PackBot, which has served in hundreds of thousands of military missions, mostly connected to the detection and disarming of improvised explosive devices. Rodney will be my guest on the next episode of this podcast, and his thoughts on the umwelts of domestic robots, particularly those that will likely ship in the very near future, are fascinating. I decided to discuss robotic umwelts in this Patreon episode because they tie so closely to David Eagleman's episode. Again, you can find that at patreon.com slash Rob Reed. So I hope you join me for my actual interview with Rodney in about two weeks. His own history is just as deep in the world of AI as in that of robotics, and we discuss both of these topics in depth. Of course, we also discuss his first startup, iRobot, as well as his most recent startup called Rethink Robots, which has already brought a raft of innovations to the field. I'll be posting that interview in a couple of weeks, and I do hope you'll join me. Mm-hmm.